I'm joined once again by Lauren Roche, backed by popular demand. And there was quite a demand, actually. Our, our first conversation um, that we had a few months ago, I have received so many comments about it, so much feedback about it. Um, people have been saying, do another one, do another one. So here we are once again. Thank you so much, Lauren, for coming back on. It's a pleasure, Steve. You wild man, our Viking, <laughs> occupying the, well, how do you pronounce it, Tim? The Thames, The yes. Vikings still rule. <laughs> you, have your, you have your warship and you're conquering London. <laughs> it's true. I'm, I'm ancestrally bound to occupy any body of water that I come across. It's, it's, it's part of my DNA, I suppose. Yes. So, Jim, one of the things that people found very fascinating in our last conversation, and one of the things that, um, one of the reasons I, that I was so keen to talk with you in the first place is you, you have a very uh, different sort of approach to meditation than a lot of the, the standard or more, uh, should we say, uh, kind of what the man on the street thinks of meditation. You've got a very different approach to that, to, to meditation. And so a lot of people were very fascinated by what it is you had to say about that topic. And, uh, you know, it's a polarizing subject that a lot of people uh, that I talk to, um, you know, person in the street sort of conversations, uh, when they think of meditation, they think of sitting still for hours on end. And people say, oh, I can't think of anything you know, uh, more bo uh, can't think of anything more boring than that. It just sounds like torture. And other people like the idea of meditation for various different reasons, uh, but they struggle to actually do any of it. Um, and some people meditate occasionally and some people meditate regularly uh, with various degrees of, of success, whatever that might mean, or enjoyment. And you define meditation very very broadly. There's a quote here I have from you, uh, where, it's a, where you say, there's an old joke about meditation as mental masturbation. I realized recently that it's true in a way. I would add it's not just mental. It's mental, spiritual, physical, magnetic, and cosmic meditation, uh, masturbation. In meditation, the nerves fluctuate between restfulness and excitation. It's a wave phenomenon. And that sounds like a, the sort of description or definition of meditation that you don't hear every day. So I'm curious, what does meditation mean to you? Well, meditation is a universe of techniques, literally tens of thousands of different techniques. The word meditation in practice is as broad as saying music or food. How many types of music are there like how many genres even of music and within each genre how many distinct bands are there or sounds and with food how many styles of cooking are there with meditation it probably somewhat more diverse than styles of cooking there's t buddha said that he gave 84,000 different styles of meditation or what he called Dharma doors in the Radiant Sutras and the Bhairava Tantra. The term used for these practices is sometimes is the doorways. And we hear it in the Aldous Huxley, was it Aldous Huxley, the doors of perception? So the, um, or no, that was Blake. That was Blake who first used that phrase. Anyway, the doorway or the path. So what we have in, in meditation, in usage, where we are now, what year is it? 2017, the end of 2017. We've inherited 2,500 years at least of thinking about meditation and technology of meditation and writing about meditation, poems about meditation, chants about meditation, stories. How do you, what's that word for the life of a saint? Hagiography? I've never used it before. Li the lifetime, that the, the life stories of saints. And 
the overall flavor is of the techniques of meditation adapted specifically to the needs of male monastics. These amazing, often courageous people that are like astronauts shooting themselves into outer space. These guys who would go up into their caves or go up into the monasteries and practice these intense techniques in the same way, perhaps, as those people that go parachute out of airplanes and then land on the top of a mountain and and kite ski or parasail ski down a slope and then ski off of a cliff and then let their parachute or their kite carry them and staying just ahead of an avalanche. I mean, there's this daring do spirit of go for broke that we see in modern athletes, female and, and male, but male particularly are, are bred to be this way. And it just go for broke. Like I want enlightenment or die. And we don't have any sense of how many died. It's, um, it's possible that 90% of the people died or went insane. And they only recorded the ones that made it. Why, why bother, you know, life and if life is cheap. So what we have in the lineages from all over Asia is the records and biographies and notes of this vast assortment of incredible people doing daring experiments and their lifestyle was quite different than our modern lifestyle. They were adapting the technology of meditation to their needs and their lifestyle. And the meta message is adapt meditation to your needs and your lifestyle. That's, that's always the ethical suggestion inside of yoga and, and Buddhism is adapt these techniques to your needs and your lifestyle. It's as common sense as in medicine. Um, if you're going to get a blood transfusion, get a blood transfusion of something that's compatible with your blood. So, um, or if you're going to get shoes, build a pair of shoes that fits your foot and, and the kind of walking you're going to be doing. It's just common sense. So, we have this legacy of thousands of years of often just genius, daring, courageous, hardworking male monastics who've given us this in, an extraordinary technology and psychology. And our job in modern time is to adapt it to the way people live now. Now, some percentage of people, modern people, I don't know what it is, might actually truly want to be celibate. Perhaps they're asexual. Perhaps they have no sex drive. And all they want is to remove themselves from this sort of disgusting mess of everyday life. There's, there's a universe of techniques for people like that. And other people may just not want to identify as male or female. And there's just a whole world of techniques and, and feeling tones in the meditation traditions for that. People who just don't want to identify as male or female. That's the, the monastic traditions are kind of the original alt sex. And there's a sense in the um, Asian cultures, it's just like, don't ask, don't tell. We just don't want to know what you guys are doing for sex. Don't even, it's too much info. We don't want to know. Just like whatever, you guys stay up there on your hillside and don't, please don't even hint at anything. We don't want to know. Just, we'll bring you food, leave you alone. You pray for us, it, you know, deal. So we actually don't know much about what, the meditation lineages have done sexually over these thousands of years. And um, 
when we do find out when there is something to leak out, they're just acting like guys. <laughs> you can re- read about it. There, it's everything that you would think that a bunch of men would do when they're locked up together um, with no women around. They're just doing everything sexually that you could imagine. So um, here we are thousands of years after Buddha and there's some percentage of people in the modern world. I don't know what it is. It could be 1% that are naturally monks. They just naturally want to be asexual and the great percentage Let's, let's just ballpark it as, say, over 90% uh, have a longing to be in relationship. They, they want to be paired either male-female or male-male or female-female. Or maybe in trees, who knows, whatever people are doing. But they want to be in relationship and they want to live the life of all of their chakras. Like, we can assume that if whoever is coming to learn to meditate wants to live all of their life energies. And this is a very high art. I mean, keeping sexually charged and tuned for your lover and then including your sexuality as part of your overall spirituality. It's a high art. It's the Olympics. And, and everybody is called to that. So we've inherited this techniques that were developed for totally different type of people. And we're in the process of adapting them. And one of the things that's going on is that meditation is cloaked in religion. And when think, people are thinking religiously, they don't think about what works. They just believe you just do whatever was done in the past. So in religious thinking, the tendency is not to be consider what works and what doesn't work. But the meditation traditions were invented by people who are very practical thinkers. They were like engineers. Buddha was like an engineer. All of the great meditation teachers of the past were very engineering oriented. They, they looked at who the people were that were coming to them. And they invented and adapted and adjusted and they tweaked this knob and that and they built they built out of local material things that were adapted for the bodies of the people present. Man, was that a long-winded answer? That's excellent. There's so much in there. You know, you're you're talking about these uh, these pioneers of of meditation and of experience. You're kind of comparing them to the sort of person who jumps out of an airplane and lands on a mountain and then kite surfs down to the ocean and then wrestles a shark or something like that, you know. And one of the in that kind of a, an extreme sport, the stakes, the risks are things like death, you know, and the the rewards are the thrill, you know, the the sort of full experience of 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 not dying if you survive that sort of thing. And what what do you think with the stakes or are the stakes? Um, with these meditation pioneers that you're des- you're describing, what what was the uh, orientation? What's what's the equivalent of falling out of the airplane for for a person like that? Well, when I was nineteen, like I was really desperate, and I'd had that burning burning desire. I mean, in some ways, I was really a stupid teenager, clueless, and um, like there's a way teenage boys are just kind of dumb. I mean, that's why armies use them as cannon fodder. In another world, I could have been turned into a soldier. But I had this desperate, desperate yearning to break through. And I wasn't happy with like the structure of my own like ego and my own sense of the world, I knew that there was 
this whole larger embrace of the universe. And I had, I had tasted it and I knew I wasn't living in it. And I had that go for broke, that kamikaze impulse that, that teen young men have. I didn't know that. I just knew I was so desperate. I was completely willing to die. Like I would rather die than go on this way, living as I was. And um, with the anguish that I was in. And so I just, the hint that the, the first hint that there is meditation teacher training available, I just, just all in. And I spent the better part of a year doing asana and meditating all day after a couple of years of preparation, um, body work and Jungian analysis and gestalt therapy, dreamwork, dance therapy, art therapy, that turns out to have been crucial, especially the body work. And so I threw myself in to my teacher training with that utter desperate feeling. And my teacher suggested I stay in my room and have my girlfriend bring food. And so I wound up in the middle of this, spending a month in total blackness. From It was 28 days, so it was a full moon to full moon. And I stayed in pitch black with, sometimes I'd light an incense stick and I could see the whole room by the light of the incense stick. And I just did asana and meditated over and over again, all day. And um, around, it was called, that's what it's called. When you, you do asana and asana flow, and then sapranayama, and then sink into meditation, and then do pranayama, and then asana again. That's called a round. So I would do maybe six rounds, wake up and maybe do six rounds, and then eat something, and then rest, and rest for an hour or two, and then do another bunch of rounds. I would stop at 6 p.m. or so, so I'd be able to sleep. And in a way, the first two weeks of that was like a chainsaw massacre. It was every terror, every fear, every trauma I had ever experienced replayed over and over and over. And there's an acceleration of time so that you can live your whole lifetime as if in seconds. But the total brain is given over to processing. And it was utterly intolerable and felt impossible. But in out of desperate necessity, life invents a way, life finds a way. And so if the sensation was that I was being crushed, then at the last instant where I couldn't take it anymore, there would be a sense of being turned into a diamond and being perfectly clear. If the sensation was of being ripped apart as if by wild animals, and eventually at, at the point of like the dentist drill hitting your nerve, it would turn into a sense of being expanded, exploded, and then becoming as large as the solar system. So it, in, inside of each intolerable torture, there was a gift. And this went on over and over and over. It was relentless. And I was willing to stay there because of that desperate go for broke 
teenage, stupid teenage boy quality. And I had been prepared by a, a hope for this. I didn't realize it until later by a tired team of geniuses like at Esalen that had tutored me and initiated me. So I, from the bodywork and rolfing, which is very, at the time, it was very painful bodywork. Um, the rolfers would push so hard that they would have calluses all over their knuckles and their elbows. Um, I'd been prepared by bodywork and gestalt therapy and Jungian analysis and Tai Chi and dream work and dancing and art. I've been prepared to be there. But someone who wasn't prepared, I could see, could easily go and crazy. Instead, I just went sane. I went fearless. After weeks, after weeks of reliving every horror I had ever experienced, every trauma, every betrayal, every crushing experience, every emotional injury, every tragedy that I'd witnessed, reliving it over and over and over and over from the vantage point of this deep, deep and peaceful meditation. I got to where I had, I accepted everything totally without any reservation, without a hint of resentment or anger or fear. I accepted everything that had happened to me down to the molecular level and then the atomic level and had gone through it in to spaciousness and a sense that I was a little tiny dot on a planet, this beautiful planet that itself was a little tiny dot in this gorgeous solar system that itself was a teeny tiny dot in this galaxy. So in order to handle that pain that I was in, I had to go into a kind of solar system awareness. That was the only thing that let me not feel crushed was to allow my awareness to be expanded or beyond the orbit of the earth to, it was like Saturn, perhaps. It felt, it felt like my essence. In order to stay sane, in order to not be crushed and just die, I had to, what is it like, melt? I had to yield to being held by the space that our solar system exists in. And I was just utterly peaceful. And I remembered everything. But it was as if my previous life had happened maybe 20 or 30 lifetimes previously. <clears throat> like I remembered everyone and everything. I was just over it. I was just like, I'm, I'm over it. That happened. <clears throat> and my here and now was so vivid. It would, um, it was incandescent and completely poised and un completely unafraid of anything inside me or in the outer world. In a way, the last 48 years, I'm just getting used to uh, living, <laughs> living with that. And so that's my version. And I've had many, many other times like that where I take a month or three months or nine months off and just give over to meditating and doing asana all day, every day, and then letting the experience transform me. So actually at the end of that month, I walked down the beach and and talk with my teacher 
And I said, <laughs> I said, if I could stay here another three years, I think I would become enlightened. <laughs> I actually said that. I was 20, you know, 20. <laughs> and he said, go and teach. And then come back. But the structure was you teach for six months and then they, you, you jump on a plane and go to one of these courses and do a month of meditation and then you go back and teach. So, which is a brilliant system. So I did. I went back to teach, but I, I really did want to stay there for three years. And I actually had the thought, actually had the thought sitting there in my room, I said, I wondered if I went to a prison warden and said, here's, here's some money for food. Could I be in solitary confinement for three years? Because I, I want to meditate. <laughs> I had such a craving to continue to just do asana and meditate for three years and let this process continue and become more total. Just let it have its way with me. So it seems like my job since then, 1970, that was 1970, has been to supervise people who are living in the world. They have jobs and families and friends and songs to write, you know, children to raise, businesses to start or maintain. And they want to give over to their own internal process while living in the world. They don't want to. And so that's been my job the last 48 years is supervising people who want to find a meditation technique out of thousands that works for them and then handle all of the changes brought about by doing those practices. And that's, that's my thrill. That's my, my ecstasy is to be able to be of service to people who are living in the world. Because I feel that they're utterly sincere. I'm moved by what incredible, hard, incredible, hardworking, dedicated, spiritually longing human beings there are out there. It's, it moves me like music does. The, the, song, the song of their longing to be able to meditate. It's fascinating. So let's, let's say this, this longing is met and someone begins to meditate, someone who's simultaneously you know, living in what quote-unquote normal life what happens to a person when they start to meditate regularly? You noticed you mentioned the changes. Uh, you mentioned the word changes. What happens to a person when they start to meditate regularly? There's a variety of things happen. And some meditation gets credit for some things that really the person should get credit for. So if we look structurally, say someone starts to meditate. Well, first of all, they've decided to give time. So say they meditate for 20 minutes in the morning. So first of all, they've decided to give themselves this time. And so that's a major contributor. Then in some way, unless they're practicing disso dissociation, which many people do, but say that they're doing something that's a non-denial technique they're being with themselves they're just being there with who they are for 20 minutes and in some way wondering who am i so that's probably the most powerful thing 
that the person just shows up. And because I said to life, who am I? What am I supposed to become? How can I, how can I become my real self? How can I fulfill my purpose here on earth? That's probably the most beneficial thing. And then there's the match of the technique and the person. And most people, if you interview them about their meditation practice, there's this feeling like they're wearing a shoe that doesn't quite fit. It's like basically like a high heel and it's, it's destroying their toes Mm -hmm. and it's wrecking their ankles and their knees, but they think that it looks cool. People, tend to meditate in a way that they think makes them look cool. It's like high heel shoes. And so they're getting some benefit from showing up and then some harm, like wearing high heel shoes all the time. There's a kind of a strangulation that often goes on and so people are often getting a mix of some benefit and some harm. Like they're installing a control structure designed for monks on their inner life. So they'll get this benefit. Often the first couple of years of meditation, people benefit because they're just giving themselves this time. And it's so, it's so basically beneficial to do that that they have all kinds of benefits of clarity and relaxation and functioning. But to the extent that a person has this mood of practicing in the tradition of monks, they'll tend to be imposing, for example, the ideal, the ideals of stillness and calmness on their inner life rather than passion. And then this will have unknown effects. Like with some people, for example, if you think about an ashram around a guru, gurus are famous for telling everybody to be celibate, including married people. And so when the guru says, okay, be celibate, a certain percentage of people will just repress their sexuality successfully. And other people it creates an attitude of incredible horniness because some percentage, maybe 30% or 40% of people to them when sex is forbidden, that's really hot. That's what's hot is being able to sneak around at night. And when you're not supposed to have sex, it's sneak around to the ashram at night. That's what's really hot. And this happens over and over and over again in Meditation schools, it's just famous. I mean, it probably always happens. Some people will repress themselves successfully and just sort of turn pale and bland and look like their blood has been drained. Other people get really lively, like, man, this is fun. The the atmosphere is crackling with lust. So people vary differently. When people meditate and have the idea that calmness is better than passion, and that if I was really a good meditator, I would have fewer thoughts. Eventually, that repression is going to sink down really deeply. And so on levels that usually aren't touched, like the inner, your secret inner life, they take this the police of meditation, go in and start beating up the impulses of life. So some people become devitalized. So the first couple of years that they were meditating, they, they were thriving because of the increased serenity and calmness. And then after that, they start to decline because they've, there's kind of an internal castration going on of cutting, snip, 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 cutting all those disturbing impulses. So it's, um, it varies. And here in LA, um, the yoga community is, has been in love with ayahuasca for years. It's sort of all they talk about in private. And part for some people, what's happening is that they've been practicing yoga and meditation 
with this famous attitude of suppression. And so yoga and meditation Mm -hmm. are a stultifying suppressive practice, like sitting in church. So of course, for people, meditation has come to be exactly like sitting in church, a white Protestant church. You sit still and try to make your mind blank and look cool and try to act pious. So they have to go somewhere else to get real. If meditation, if the mood of your meditation practice is that there's like a, there's a saint or a monk around looking over you, blessing you, it's very much like church. And so you have to go somewhere else to be your wild and natural self. So that's what people do to a great extent. Meditation teachers and yoga teachers will have this secret life where they get stoned at night on weekends. They take ecstasy. And once a month or every couple months, they take ayahuasca. And that's in order to have a place where they're real. Because meditation is a place where you're not real. You're, you're pretending to be spiritual and pretending to like look, look pious and virtuous and, and, um, that like you're totally down with the monks and the saints and everything. It's like, yeah, I'm so, so you've got your beads, you've got your guru. It's all part of your, you know, your, your, you got your great yoga pants and you've got your guru and you like, you can out spiritual anybody. So in order to be real, you have to go take yeah. a, um, a magical substance. You have to go take a magical herb. And so for some people that works just fine. I'm not going to, um, I'm, I don't do that. So in order to have balance, people will take drugs. I don't teach meditation in that way. I don't, for me, it's not my job to teach meditation that sets people up to be unbalanced. So they have to go somewhere else to be real. The, one of the differences in my approach is that by a wild bunch of coincidences, I was, I started this whole thing in the, in a science lab measure, helping to measure people's physiological changes during meditation. And then I started interviewing people about their subjective experience. And then I got curious about what do successful meditators do? These people, people who have kids and jobs and are thriving, how do they approach meditation? So I started seeking out and interviewing people who live in the world and are thrive and have a daily meditation practice and are just happy, radiant people. So my approach to meditation in addition to being, this is the way I was trained by my teachers. It's been informed by interviews with thousands of meditators over the last 50 years. Cause I've, I've just had this perpetual interest in how do people do it? How do people thrive in meditation? What actually, what actually works? So I'm, I'm always more interested in what actually works than what's the theory that some monk in 800 AD said. So I'm curious in your experience then, to what extent is the defining factor of, of this difference, the technique itself, and to what extent is the view? In other words, is it the way one meditates or what one thinks one's doing, the sort of unconscious or conscious objective of the meditation is? Well, this is where it's shocking and yet it's also common sense. There's these written instructions of, um, say, a, a meditation technique. Pay attention to your breathing, say. And if you actually interview, say there's 100 people, you give them a meditation instruction, okay, let's pay attention to our breathing. If you actually interview people and get them talking about what they're actually doing, you'll people are doing a hundred different techniques, actually more because each person may have four or five different techniques. 
that they bring to bear. Because they'll try one thing and then another thing and then another thing. And people invent all sorts of rules that aren't what the teacher just said. And um, sociologists say that a certain percentage, what, what, a percent, what percentage of human communication is verbal? It's like 10%. People, it, they say some, the majority of what people get is nonverbal. So people will read the attitude, the tone of voice, and the context, what they think the context is. They'll attempt to do the technique that they think that they heard the teacher describing. And then what happens is that they do their personality. When people are meditating, in a way, they might be in kindergarten with the mean kindergarten teacher saying, shut up, look at the blackboard, sit still, stop, stop wiggling. Or they might be, they might be with their mother. They might be sitting at a high school or with their mother trying to get them to eat or whatever. They're, they're in some part of their inner world and they're trying to do the technique but what they know is their personality. So they're, and then everybody's subpersonalities start beating them up and scolding them like you're not doing it right. I told you you could never meditate. I told you that you're undisciplined. So there's all of this stuff going on. And these tiny little moves, like the way that people walk or the way that they hold a glass or the, the way that they listen to another person. There's all of these subtle internal behaviors that are unconscious to the person. And that's what they're doing when they say that, quote, I'm meditating, end quote. They're doing their personality. You know, they're doing their lovemaking style or they're doing their karaoke style. And so, except that it's, not necessarily as free as doing karaoke. They're sitting, they're doing their sitting in church style. And so it's pretty amazing to actually interview somebody for, and it takes, it could take an hour or two of just listening to get at what a person's really doing. And nowadays it's actually harder to get people to talk about what they're really doing in meditation, then say, what's your favorite masturbation technique? People are really ashamed of their minds and defensive. They're defensive. <laughs> so it's even meditation teachers often have very little idea what they're really doing. How can you tell what you're doing inside when you're meditating? It's, um, Thoughts, maybe 10 thoughts come per second. And with each thought, there's some sort of a response. There's some sort of a reflex. So what do you do? How do you keep track of 10? When I have people in sessions close their eyes, in 15 seconds, they've experienced a whole world of stuff. I'll often have people open their eyes after 15 seconds and then tell me what they just experienced. My favorite, one of my favorite um, experiences with there, <laughs> I had a, uh, it was like a 26 year old woman closed her eyes and 15 seconds later said, okay, what are you experiencing? And she get, had this wild look. She said, just like millions of thoughts flying in every direction. It was like, that can't be, you know. It was like, that can't be right. You've got to control all this. You know, she was right there, 15 seconds in. She f was starting to feel the need to shut it all down. Especially if they're flying in all directions. And, of course, that's just what the human mind is. You know, our brains are 86 billion neurons. Each one has maybe up to 10,000 Facebook friends and they're signaling each other 200 times a second. And that's just on the gross level. 
you know, at the, at the synaptic connection, there's perhaps hundreds of trillions of interconnected networks humming continuously as they generate our experience of the world. That's at hundreds of trillions of, of connections. And perhaps at a quantum level, it's more than there are atoms in the universe popping in and out of existence, all part of creating what we call consciousness. So when you just give over to attending to what the mind is, what the brain is, it's like looking at the universe in motion. It's like, what if galaxies, the dance of galaxies was happening as fast as a merry-go-round? There's just elements and energies flying everywhere. And of course, it's actually totally coherent. You're just not used to looking at it. So right there, 15 seconds in, you see what meditators are encountering, that these these energies of creation, that's are always there, but they're shocked. Like if, if you were to take the soundproofing off of a modern car, take the muffler off and, and just be there underneath an engine, it's a series of explosions. It's incredibly loud. Any car or motorcycle would be unbelievably loud if you took the muffler off. Blam, blam. And there'd be a spark, however, however many times per second. Blam, a spark, an explosion of gasoline. It's a series, of, an engine is a series of controlled explosions. And even one little one, even one cylinder firing once would be deafening. So we're powered our bodies are parts of the of life and they're genius. They're full of genius. And it takes a while to get used to that. But just the thought that you're supposed to control um, throws you off balance. So that seems to fly in the face somewhat of, of um, the sorts of concepts you hear in relationship to things like shamatha, concentration, meditations, making the mind pliant? Well, it just depends on what kind of training. You know, if you consider it as just techniques, then what's, what do you want to train yourself for? Like monks need to be compliant in order for the monastery to survive. They have to, it's basically about crowd control. You have to like break their spirit and keep these guys from going, going wild there. Um, it's not covered anymore. It's not politically correct, but there used to be an article in the newspapers, the New York times, LA times, every few years, there would be uh, like an associated press report that a monastery somewhere was burnt down by angry villagers because the monk got a local girl pregnant. It used to be, they would be alert for that happening and would, it would be right there in um, maybe page three of, of a newspaper. And it, because in these traditional societies, if a girl got pregnant, out of wed- wedlock, it would be a disaster for the whole family for centuries. It was much worse than someone dying. It brought shame on the whole family. And in, in an arranged marriage society, it's, it's a deal between families. The whole family is affected by each marriage. So above all, you have to psychologically castrate the monks and just prevent that from happening. And monks have to act spiritual no matter what in order to be supported by the, by the farmers. And then because their basic stance is anti-instinct, 
as anti-life. You have to con- there's the flavor of controlling. There's this whole idea that there's a separate split off you that has to take control of this other you. So it's, there's the sense that you control and suppress life is just through and through. And that's not the position of someone who lives in the world. Like if you regular people and, and there's tens of millions of people in the Western world practicing meditation, their basic situation isn't that they're too wild and they need to be suppressed more. It's really the last thing. They need at least one place where they can go to be free. Because people with jobs and families, just their love, work is love made manifest. Their love calls them to be in these situations where raising kids or doing a business where they're, they're so tamed, they're so suppressed by, a, by their discipline. The last thing they need in meditation for it to be more discipline. It's just the last thing. They need place to be, to be free and natural and uncon- uncontrolled and just be their self, be their natural self, meet their wildness. They need a place to meet all of who they are. It's, it's a totally it's the opposite feeling of a monastic meditation. What are some of the means of, of castration that you've noticed in the more monastic approaches that would be potentially harmful oh, just to our shoulder? It doesn't need to be much. I mean, I have, I've always had pictures of, of celibate monks you know, on my altar over there. Um, yeah. It's the swamis. They've taken these vows of celibacy. Just the idea that to be spiritual, you're celibate. Right. In meditation, say, say you're just doing a breathing awareness. You're just appreciating the flow of breath. When you go into meditation and you meditate every day, after a while, you're very intimate with the life force. You're right there with your awareness merged with the life force as it's vibrating as you and even one little teeny thought will really one should be celibate or one should be peaceful one shouldn't have anger even just the hint of an ideal when you're being that intimate with the life force just that hint of suppression will pattern itself very deeply into your cells you need to actively encourage your wildness in your life and have an enthusiasm for, for life. You, you want to actively cherish your liveliness. That's how the people that I know who thrive in meditation year after year have this kind of humorous adoration of the of just everyday life impulses and desires. It doesn't take much when you're meditating. It's, it's like if you're doing surgery, if you're a surgeon and you've sliced open somebody's body, if you just breathe on them, say their heart, you have their heart is right there. If you just breathe without a mask on them, you can put germs inside their body where they don't belong. If you just breathe with the feeling tone of control or suppression in meditation, it'll start to be patterned very deeply into your subtle body nervous system because of the whole feeling, the world, there's so much repression in the world. So what meditators are like, and this is, it's kind of, horrifying to think so many people in their job they sit in a cubicle and look at a little screen and do chores the default mode for people when they meditate is that they're sitting in their cubicle at work they're sitting supposed to sit still and not wiggle and look respectable look like you're and you look at a little screen in your mind like an iphone a blank phone or blank computer screen So it's just like being at work, except that you're supposed to be looking at a blank screen 
and concentrating on it. So it's the default mode, the unconscious attitude that people have is the most boring thing possible. Yeah. Make yourself look at a blank screen in your mind's eye and then beat yourself up every time your mind wanders. Eat your vegetables. Eat your vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> That's the unconscious thing that almost everybody brings to meditation. And then, and that's the starting point. And then you want to be unlearning that and setting yourself free. And you want to do that really quickly before the control patterns get deeply embedded. Yeah. Because once those become fierce habits, it's like it's the concrete sets and it's very difficult to unlearn the attitude of repression and control once it's gotten it's taken over your meditation practice i know we're almost at the end of our time but two quick themes to pick up on before we finish talking about discipline control and these sorts of things or suppression the argument i think from the monastic side might be something along the lines of the suppression or the control is the means to the kind of freedom you're describing, the kind of uh, wildness, the kind of um, openness that you're describing. A little bit like a musician has to go through a certain discipline to learn certain techniques so that they can cut loose on the instrument in a certain way, that actually the pressing of the discipline of the technique into the deep mind or whatever it might be is 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 the vehicle for the freedom itself. What do you think of that idea? Well, in practice, imposing control or restriction just tends to produce a backlog, a backlash. I mean, the in other words, when people diet, then they binge. So if you start talking about diet and teaching, say, teenage girls, you've got to restrict You've got to control your desires for food. Right. Then a certain percentage of them are going to develop eating disorders. Perhaps a large percentage of them are just going to develop what's a subclinical eating disorder, just an attitude that you have to control your desire for food and fit into an ideal. This is just a known thing. This is not con that's not controversial. Yeah. It, it's known everywhere in every field that you throw people off balance. You know, really, if monks were being ethical, they wouldn't teach householders. They would say, I don't know what I'm doing. You're yeah. so, di you're so different than me that I, I resign as your teacher. If they were ethical enough to notice that they don't know who they're talking to, that would be more what they're saying. But, the need, the screaming need that we all have for meditation instruction, it calls the monks out of their monasteries and off their mountaintops to come because it's better than nothing. And it could, it could take centuries for uh, us in the West to develop our own traditions. So we're just making do we're making you i've never had a bad experience with the monk i'm very grateful to all the monks and swamis and uh, but they trained me that there's a very remarkable distinction between the life of a monk and someone who lives in the world it's a different rule set it's a different rule structure so um it's alluring on a superficial level, we think, okay, I'm going to pose discipline. That's what I need. Right. And it, it sounds macho, but it is ex in fact, in practice, it's exactly like getting up in the morning and say, okay, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to control my appetite and I'm going to discipline my appetite. And as everyone knows, as soon as you do that, then immediately there's the allure of the forbidden. You set up you, you, you create an artificial neurosis where immediately you're split into your natural desires and the, the, the policeman, 
and then you're just in hell. Everyone knows that. Yeah. It's no it's not controversial. It's everybody knows that. And and to think that this is going to be somehow magically true in meditation where it's a failure everywhere else in life is sort of a fantasy. People are preaching things that make meditators feel like a failure. Like talk to people who are honest and they'll just there. So you just hear people. I just feel like a failure in meditation. You'll hear people say that. And this is the last thing modern people need when they're studying is just to feel like a failure. If it was learning French or uh, any math, it would go, what kind of a fucking school are you going to? Everyone feels like a failure at arithmetic. Yeah. And it's not necessary. I mean, it's already known that you can teach meditation to millions of people and they're, they're successful and they have an easy time meditating and they have a great time. This is already known. This was figured out in the sixties. There's, there's, just millions of people have done effortless style of meditation. There's many different organizations teaching. It's a known thing. So let's say, just to finish, and thanks so much, Lauren, for this. This has been fantastic. Someone's with you on a train or a plane or something, sat across from you, and they find out you're a meditation teacher, and they say, oh, man, you know, I've, been, I've tried meditating so many times. It never works. And they hear you talking about this easeful, joyful, enjoyable uh, style of meditation or approach to meditation, how would you orient them if you had only, say, five minutes or something like that? I'm thinking of people listening uh, in that kind of a situation here. I would say human beings are naturally good at meditation. Everyone has their own favorite style, which feels natural for them. Find that. There's there's a thousand different techniques and your technique will feel natural and enjoyable to you. So what do you love so much that you want to be with it? Let's start there. Tell me about the things that you love so much that you get immersed in them. Could be video games, fishing, movie, emotional music, dancing, eating. What do you love so much? that you just find your, you just fall in, you just love to attend. So you build your practice around what you love. That's what a meditation practice actually is. It's being with what you love. All meditation practices in essence are ways of being with the life force as it pulsates. What's missing in general from the approach to meditation historically and in current times is a sense of awe and wonder and delight. We are built to love life. We're built to be in awe of this mystery we're inhabiting. We're built to love, to utterly love and to crave things that sustain us and give us life. Like we love food, we love sex, we love moving, we love freedom. Our bodies are built, every cell, every trillion, every cell of the trillions of cells is built to love life itself. And all of the meditation techniques of the world in their very essence are ways of being in love with life and letting life renew us on a very deep level. So start with what you love, what you love so much that you can just get lost in it. Dancing, eating, sex, conversations, hiking in nature, you know, fishing, surfing, sailing, raising babe, holding babies, gardening. You start with that. And you build your meditation practice out of that style of attention, which you already have. So that's the way 
I begin with people. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think it's really quite a radical reimagining of meditation compared to so many of the uh, orthodox or uh, commonly pro uh, promulgated approaches. It's really fantastic, Lauren. It's probably where all the meditation techniques came from. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. So you you have your meditation teacher training, which I, from what I saw is still accepting applicants for a little while longer until the end of the year. Is that right? Yes. So I'll put the links to all that below the in the show notes so people can find you. I'll put all the, all the websites the same as the last time we had our conversation. Thank you so much. This has been a such super fascinating conversation. Um, really appreciate your time. It's always great talking to you, to you, Steve. It really is. I feel the the um, the communion between the beach here, where it's a uh, it's a bright sunny day <laughs> at the beach near LA, and and you you there near London. It's good to talk to you. <laughs>